0: Welcome to Part 2 of The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Algernon Blackwood is another classic writer who, like many of the authors we choose at 1001, had an interesting life before he began to write horror stories in his 30s. He taught the violin, he was a bartender, he reported for the New York Times, he operated a hotel, and he worked as a farmer in Canada so he knew the dark woods and the old Indian legends well, the setting and subject of this story. First published in 1910, The Wendigo is one of Blackwood's early stories, and also one of his most famous. In the length of a short novella, Blackwood managed to craft a story which not only is eerie and atmospheric to this day, but continues to influence contemporary writers of horror and weird fiction. The Wendigo is a creature enshrined in the myths of various Native American tribes that inhabited the area of the Great Lakes, today located on the American-Canadian border, most notably the Ojibwe. A Wendigo is mostly associated with the vast and cold spaces of the North, where it hunted down those unlucky to stumble on its path. Feasting on flesh, a Wendigo would give off an odor of decay and corruption, resembling the cryptid we know as Bigfoot in that respect, anyway. The Algonquin tribes of North America believed that humans could be possessed by the spirit of a Wendigo while dreaming, and become obsessed with eating human flesh, or be turned into Wendigos when they resorted to cannibalism on their own, even when they were forced to do so to survive a particularly harsh winter or a famine. And now, part two of The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood. There was nothing but the sense of his recent presence, so strongly left behind about the camp, and this penetrating, all-pervading odor. And even this was now rapidly disappearing in its turn. In spite of his exceeding mental perturbation, Simpson struggled hard to detect its nature and define it, but the ascertaining of an elusive scent, not recognized subconsciously and at once, is a very subtle operation of the mind. And he failed. It was gone before he could properly seize or name it. Approximate description, even, seems to have been difficult, for it was unlike any smell he knew. Acrid, rather, not unlike the odor of a lion, he thinks, yet softer and not wholly unpleasing, with something almost sweet in it that reminded him of the scent of decaying garden leaves, earth, and the myriad nameless perfumes that make up the odor of a big forest. Yet, the odor of lions is the phrase with which he usually sums it up. Then it was wholly gone, and he found himself standing by the ashes of the fire in a state of amazement and stupid terror that left him the helpless prey of anything that chose to happen. Had a muskrat poked its pointed muzzle over a rock, or a squirrel scuttled in that instant down the bark of a tree, he would most likely have collapsed without more ado and fainted. For he felt about the whole affair the touched somewhere, of a great outer horror, and his scattered powers had not as yet had time to collect themselves into a definite attitude of fighting self-control. Nothing did happen, however. A great kiss of wind ran softly through the awakening forest, and a few maple leaves here and there rustled tremblingly to earth. The sky seemed to grow suddenly much lighter. Simpson felt the cool air upon his cheek and uncovered head, realized that he was shivering with the cold, and making a great effort, realized next that he was alone in the bush and that he was called upon to take immediate steps to find and succor his vanished companion. Make an effort, accordingly he did, though an ill-calculated and futile one. With that wilderness of trees about him, the sheet of water cutting him off behind, and the horror of that wild cry in his blood, he did what any other inexperienced man would have done in similar bewilderment. He ran about, "'without any sense of direction, like a frantic child, "'and called loudly without seizing the name of the guide, "'Defego! Defego! Defego!' "'He yelled, and the trees gave him back the name "'as often as he shouted, only a little softened. "'Defego! Defego!' "'He followed the trail that lay a short distance "'across the patches of snow, and then lost it again "'where the trees grew too thickly for snow to lie.' He shouted till he was hoarse, until the sound of his own voice in all that unanswering and listening world began to frighten him. His confusion increased in direct ratio to the violence of his efforts. His distress became formidably acute till at length his exertions defeated their own object, and from sheer exhaustion he headed back to camp again. It remains a wonder that he ever found his way. It was with great difficulty, and only after numberless false cues, that he at last saw the white tent between the trees, and so reached safety. Exhaustion then applied its own remedy, and he grew calmer. He made the fire and breakfasted. Hot coffee and bacon put a little sense and judgment into him again, and he realized that he had been behaving like a boy. He now made another and more successful attempt to face the situation collectedly, and a nature naturally plucky coming to his assistance, he decided that he must first make as thorough a search as possible, failing success in which he must find his way into the home camp as best he could, and bring help. And this was what he did. Taking food, matches and rifle with him, and a small axe to blaze the trees against his return journey, he set forth. It was eight o'clock when he started, the sun shining over the tops of the trees in a sky without clouds. Pinned to a stake by the fire, he left a note in case DeFego returned while he was away. This time, according to a careful plan, he took a new direction, intending to make a wide sweep that must sooner or later cut into indications of the guide's trail, and before he had gone a quarter of a mile, he came across the tracks of a large animal in the snow, and beside it, the light and smaller tracks of what were beyond question human feet. The Feet of DeFego The relief he at once experienced was natural, though brief, for at first sight he saw in these tracks a simple explanation of the whole matter. These big marks had surely been left by a bull moose, that, wind against it, had blundered upon the camp, and uttered its singular cry of warning and alarm the moment its mistake was apparent. De fago, in whom the hunting instinct was developed to the point of uncanny perfection, had scented the brute coming down the wind hours before. His excitement and disappearance were due, of course, to—to to his— Then the impossible explanation at which he grasped faded, as common sense showed him mercilessly that none of this was true. No guide, much less a guide like Tafego, could have acted in so irrational a way, going off even without his rifle. The whole affair demanded a far more complicated elucidation when he remembered the details of it all, the cry of terror, the amazing language, the great face of horror when his nostrils first caught the new odor, that muffled sobbing in the darkness, and, for this too, now came back to him dimly, the man's original aversion for this particular bit of country. Besides, now that he had examined them closer, these were not the tracks of a bull moose at all. Hank had explained to him the outline of a bull's hoofs, of a cow's or calf's, too, for that matter. He had drawn them clearly on a strip of birch bark, and these were wholly different. They were big, round, ample, and with no pointed outline as of sharp hooves. He wondered for a moment whether bear tracks were like that. There was no other animal he could think of, for caribou did not come so far south at this season, and even if they did, would leave hoof marks. They were ominous signs, these mysterious writings left in the snow by the unknown creature that had lured a human being away from safety. And when he coupled them in his imagination with that haunting sound that broke the stillness of the dawn, A momentary dizziness shook his mind, distressing him again, beyond belief. He felt the threatening aspect of it all, and stooping down to examine the marks more closely, he caught a faint whiff of that sweet yet pungent odor that made him instantly straighten up again, fighting a sensation almost of nausea. Then his memory played him another evil trick. He suddenly recalled those uncovered feet projecting beyond the edge of the tent, and the body's appearance of having been dragged towards the opening, the man shrinking from something by the door when he woke later. The details now beat against his trembling mind with concerted attack. They seemed to gather in those deep spaces of the silent forest about him, where the host of trees stood waiting, listening, watching to see what he would do. The woods were closing round him. With the persistence of true pluck, however, Simpson went forward, following the tracks as best he could, smothering these ugly emotions that sought to weaken his will. He blazed innumerable trees as he went, ever fearful of being unable to find his way back, and calling aloud in interviews of a few seconds the name of the guide. The dull tapping of the axe upon the massive trunks and the unnatural accents of his own voice became at length sounds that he even dreaded to make, dreaded to hear, For they drew attention, without seizing to his presence and exact whereabouts, and if it were really the case that something was hunting himself down in the same way that he was hunting down another, with a strong effort he crushed the thought out the instant it rose. It was the beginning, he realized, of a bewilderment utterly diabolical in kind that would speedily destroy him. Although the snow was not continuous, lying merely in shallow flurries over the more open spaces. He found no difficulty in following the tracks for the first few miles. They went straight as a ruled line wherever the trees permitted. The stride soon began to increase in length till it finally assumed proportions that seemed absolutely impossible for any ordinary animal to have made. Like huge flying leaps they became. One of these he measured, and though he knew that stretch of 18 feet must be somehow wrong, he was at a complete loss to understand why he found no signs on the snow between the extreme points. But what perplexed him even more, making him feel his vision had gone utterly awry, was that Fago’s stride increased in the same manner and finally covered the same incredible distances. It looked as if the great beast had lifted him with it and carried him across these astonishing intervals. Simpson, who was much longer in the limb, found that he could not compass even half the stretch by taking a running jump and the sight of these huge tracks running side by side silent evidence of a dreadful journey in which terror or madness had urged to impossible results was profoundly moving it shocked him in the secret depths of his soul it was the most horrible thing his eyes had ever looked upon he began to follow them mechanically absent-mindedly almost ever peering over his shoulder to see if he too were being followed by something with a gigantic tread, and soon it came about that he no longer quite realized what it was they signified. These impressions left upon the snow by something nameless and untamed, always accompanied by the footmarks of the little French Canadian, his guide, his comrade, the man who had shared his tent a few hours before, chatting, laughing, even singing by his side. For a man of his years and inexperience, only a canny Scott, perhaps, grounded in common sense and established in logic, could have preserved even that measure of balance that this youth somehow or other did manage to preserve through the whole adventure. Otherwise, two things he presently noticed while forging pluckily ahead must have sent him headlong back to the comparative safety of his tent instead of only making his hands close more tightly upon the rifle stock, while his heart Trained for the wee kirk, sent a wordless prayer winging its way to heaven. Both tracks he saw had undergone a change, and this change, so far as it concerned the footsteps of the man, was in some undecipherable manner appalling. It was in the bigger tracks he first noticed this, and for a long time he could not quite believe his eyes. Was it the blown leaves that produced odd effects of light and shade? Or that dry snow drifting like finely ground rice about the edges, cast shadows and highlights? Or was it actually the fact that the great marks had become faintly colored? For round about the deep plunging holes of the animal there now appeared a mysterious reddish tinge that was more like an effect of light than anything that dyed the substance of the snow itself. Every mark had it, and had it increasingly, this indistinct fiery tinge that painted a new touch of ghastliness into the picture. But when, wholly unable to explain or to credit it, he turned his attention to the other tracks to discover if they too bore similar witness. He noticed that these had meanwhile undergone a change that was infinitely worse and charged with far more horrible suggestion. For in that last hundred yards or so, he saw that they had grown gradually into the semblance of the parent tread. Imperceptibly, the change had come about, "'yet unmistakably. "'It was hard to see where the change first began. "'The result, however, was beyond question. "'Smaller, neater, more cleanly modeled, "'they formed now an exact and careful duplicate "'of the larger tracks beside them. "'The feet that produced them had, therefore, also changed, "'and something in his mind reared up with loathing and terror "'as he saw it. "'Simpson, for the first time, hesitated, then, Ashamed of his alarm and indecision, took a few hurried steps ahead. The next instant stopped dead in his tracks. Immediately in front of him, all signs of the trail ceased. Both tracks came to an abrupt end. On all sides, for a hundred yards and more, he searched in vain for the least indication of their continuance. There was nothing. The trees were very thick just there. Big trees, all of them, spruce, cedar, hemlock, there was no underbrush. He stood, looking about him, all distraught, bereft of any power of judgment. Then he set to work to search again, and again, and yet again, but always with the same result. Nothing. The feet that printed the surface of the snow thus far had now, apparently, left the ground and it was in that moment of distress and confusion that the whip of terror laid its most nicely calculated lash about his heart. It dropped with deadly effect upon the sorest spot of all, completely unnerving him. He had been secretly dreading all the time that it would come, and come it did. Far overhead, muted by great height and distance, strangely thinned and wailing, he heard the crying voice of DeFego, the guide. The sound dropped upon him out of that still, wintry sky with an effect of dismay and terror unsurpassed. The rifle fell to his feet. He stood motionless an instant, listening as it were with his whole body, then staggered back against the nearest tree for support, disorganized hopelessly in mind and spirit. To him, in that moment, it seemed the most shattering and dislocating experience he had ever known so that his heart emptied itself of all feeling whatsoever, as by sudden drought. Ran in far beseeching accents of indescribable appeal this voice of anguish down the sky. Once it called, then silence through all the listening wilderness of trees. And Simpson, scarcely knowing what he did, presently found himself running wildly to and fro searching, calling, tripping over roots and boulders, and flinging himself in a frenzy of undirected pursuit after the caller. Behind the screen of memory and emotion with which experience veils events, he plunged, distracted, and half deranged, picking up false lights like a ship at sea, terror in his eyes and heart and soul. For the panic of the wilderness had called to him in that far voice. The power of untamed distance, the enticement of the desolation that destroys. He knew in that moment all the pains of someone hopelessly and irretrievably lost, suffering the lust and travail of a soul in the final loneliness. A vision of DeFego, eternally hunted. It seemed ages before he could find anything in the chaos of his disorganized sensations to which he could anchor himself steady for a moment and think. The cry was not repeated. His own hoarse calling brought no response. The inscrutable forces of the wild had summoned their victim beyond recall and held him fast. Yet he searched and called, it seems, for hours afterwards, for it was late in the afternoon when at length he decided to abandon a useless pursuit and return to his camp on the shores of Fifty Island Water. Even then he went with reluctance, that crying voice still echoing in his ears With difficulty, he found his rifle and the homeward trail. The concentration necessary to follow the badly blazed trees and a biting hunger that gnawed helped to keep his mind steady. Otherwise, he admits, the temporary aberration he had suffered might have been prolonged to the point of positive disaster. Gradually, the ballast shifted back again and he regained something that approached his normal equilibrium. But for all that, The journey through the gathering dusk was miserably haunted. He heard innumerable following footsteps, voices that laughed and whispered, and saw figures crouching behind trees and boulders, making signs to one another for a concerted attack the moment he had passed. The creeping murmur of the wind made him start and listen. He went stealthily, trying to hide where possible, and making as little sound as he could. The shadows of the woods, hitherto protective or covering merely, had now become menacing, challenging, and the pageantry in his frightened mind masked a host of possibilities that were all the more ominous for being obscure. The presentiment of a nameless doom lurked ill-concealed behind every detail of what had happened. It was really admirable how he emerged victor in the end. Men of riper powers and experience might have come through the ordeal with less success. He had himself tolerably well in hand, all things considered, and his plan of action proves it. Sleep being absolutely out of the question and traveling an unknown trail in the darkness equally impracticable, he sat up the whole of that night, rifle in hand, before a fire he never for a single moment allowed to die down. The severity of the haunted vigil marked his soul for life, but it was successfully accomplished, and with it the very first signs of dawn he set forth upon the long return journey to the home camp to get help. As before, he left a written note to explain his absence, and to indicate where he had left a plentiful cache of food and matches, though he had no expectation that any human hands would find them. How Simpson found his way alone by the lake and forest might well make a story in itself, for to hear him tell it is to know the passionate loneliness of soul that a man can feel when the wilderness holds him in the hollow "'of his illimitable hand and laughs. "'It is also to admire his indomitable pluck. "'He claims no skill, "'declaring that he followed the almost invisible trail mechanically "'and without thinking, and this, doubtless, is the truth. "'He relied upon the guiding of the unconscious mind, which is instinct. "'Perhaps, too, some sense of orientation, "'known to animals and primitive men, may have helped as well. For through all that tangled region, he succeeded in reaching the exact spot where Defago had hidden the canoe nearly three days before with the remark, "'Strike due west across the lake into the sun to find the camp.'" There was not much sun left to guide him, but he used his compass to the best of his ability, embarking in the frail craft for the last twelve miles of his journey with a sensation of immense relief that the forest was at last behind him. And, fortunately, the water was calm He took his line across the center of the lake instead of coasting round the shores for another 20 miles. Fortunately, too, the other hunters were back. The light of their fires furnished a steering point without which he might have searched all night long for the actual position of the camp. It was close upon midnight all the same when his canoe grated on the sandy cove, and Hank, Punk, and his uncle, disturbed in their sleep by his cries, ran quickly down and helped a very exhausted, and broken specimen of scotch humanity over the rocks and toward a dying fire the sudden entrance of his prosaic uncle into this world of wizardry and horror that had haunted him without interruption now for two days and two nights had the immediate effect of giving to the affair an entirely new aspect the sound of that crisp hello me boy and what's up now and the grasp of that dry and vigorous hand introduced another standard of judgment A revulsion of feeling washed through him. He realized that he had let himself go rather badly. He even felt vaguely ashamed of himself. The native hard-headedness of his race reclaimed him. And this doubtless explains why he found it so hard to tell that group round the fire everything. He told enough, however, for the immediate decision to be arrived at, that a relief party must start at the earliest possible moment, and that Simpson, in order to guide it capably, must first have food, and above all, sleep. Dr. Cathcart, observing the lad's condition more shrewdly than his patient knew, gave him a very slight injection of morphine. For six hours, he slept like the dead. From the description carefully written out afterwards by this student of divinity, it appears that the account he gave to the astonished group omitted sundry, vital, and important details. He declares that, with his uncle's wholesome, matter-of-fact countenance staring him in the face, "'he simply had not the courage to mention them. "'Thus all the search party gathered, it would seem, "'was that DeFego had suffered in the night "'an acute and inexplicable attack of mania, "'had imagined himself called by someone or something, "'and had plunged into the bush after it without food or rifle, "'where he must die a horrible and lingering death "'by cold and starvation, "'unless he could be found and rescued in time. "'In time, moreover, meant at once.' In the course of the following day, however, they were off by seven, leaving Punk in charge with instructions to have food and fire always ready. Simpson found it possible to tell his uncle a good deal more of the story's true inwardness, without divining that it was drawn out of him as a matter of fact by a very subtle form of cross-examination. By the time they reached the beginning of the trail, where the canoe was laid up against the return journey, he had mentioned how DeFego spoke vaguely of something he called a wendigo, how he cried in his sleep, how he imagined an unusual scent about the camp, and had betrayed other symptoms of mental excitement. He also admitted the bewildering effect of that extraordinary odor upon himself, pungent and acrid like the odor of lions. And by the time they were within an easy hour of fifty-island water, he had let slip the further fact, a foolish avowal of his own hysterical condition, as he felt afterwards, that he had heard the vanished guide call for help. He omitted the singular phrases used, for he simply could not bring himself to repeat the preposterous language. Also, while describing how the man's footsteps in the snow had gradually assumed an exact miniature likeness of the animal's plunging tracks, he left out the fact that they measured a wholly incredible distance. It seemed a question... Nicely balanced between individual pride and honesty, what he should reveal and what he should suppress. He mentioned the fiery tinge in the snow, for instance, yet shrank from telling that body and bed had been partly dragged out of the tent. With the net result that Dr. Cathcart, adroit psychologist that he fancied himself to be, had assured him clearly enough exactly where his mind, influenced by loneliness, bewilderment, and terror, had yielded to the strain and uninvited delusion. While praising his conduct, he managed at the same time to point out where, when, and how his mind had gone astray. He made his nephew think himself finer than he was by judicious praise, yet more foolish than he was by minimizing the value of the evidence. Like many other materialists, he lied cleverly on the basis of insufficient knowledge, because the knowledge supplied seemed to his own particular intelligence inadmissible. The spell of these terrible solitudes, he said, cannot leave any mind untouched, any mind that is possessed of the higher imaginative qualities. It has worked upon yours exactly as it worked upon my own when I was your age. The animal that haunted your little camp was undoubtedly a moose, for the belling of a moose may have, sometimes, a very peculiar quality of sound. The colored appearance of the big tracks was obviously defective vision on your own eyes produced by excitement. The size and stretch of the tracks we shall prove when we come to them. But the hallucination of an audible voice, of course, is one of the commonest forms of delusion due to mental excitement—an excitement, my dear boy, perfectly excusable, and, let me add, wonderfully controlled by you under the circumstances. For the rest I am bound to say you have acted with splendid courage, for the terror of feeling oneself lost in this wilderness is nothing short of awful, and, had I been in your place, I don't for a moment believe I could have behaved with one quarter of your wisdom and decision. The only thing I find it uncommonly difficult to explain is that damned odor. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. It made me feel sick, I assure you, declared his nephew, positively dizzy. His uncle's attitude of calm omniscience, merely because he knew more psychological formulae, had made him slightly defiant. It was so easy to be wise in the explanation of an experience one has not personally witnessed. A kind of desolate and terrible odor is the only way I can describe it, he concluded, glancing at the features of the quiet, unemotional man beside him. I can only marvel, was the reply, that under the circumstances it did not seem to you even worse. The dry words Simpson knew hovered between the truth and his uncle's interpretation of the truth. And so at last they came to the little camp and found the tent still standing, the remains of the fire, and the piece of paper pinned to a stake beside it, untouched. The catch, poorly contrived by inexperienced hands, however, had been discovered and opened by muskrats, mink, and squirrel. The matches lay scattered about the opening, but the food had been taken to the last crumb. "'Well, fellers, he ain't here!' exclaimed Hank loudly after his fashion and that's as sartin as a coal supply down below. The presence of a divinity student was no barrier to his language at such a time, though for the reader's sake it may be severely edited. I propose, he added, that we start out at once and hunt for him like hell. The gloom of DeFego's probable fate oppressed the whole party with a sense of dreadful gravity the moment they saw the familiar signs of recent occupancy. Especially the tent, with the bed of balsam branches still smoothed and flattened by the pressure of his body, seemed to bring his presence near to them. Simpson, feeling vaguely as if his world were somehow at stake, went about explaining particulars in a hushed tone. He was much calmer now, though overwearied with the strain of his many journeys. His uncle's method of explaining, explaining away, rather, the details still fresh in his haunted memory, helped, too, to put ice upon his emotions. "'And that's the direction he ran off in,' he said to his two companions, "'pointing in the direction where the guide had vanished that morning in the gray dawn. "'Straight down there he ran like a deer, in between the birch and the hemlock. "'Hank and Dr. Cathcart exchanged glances. "'And it was about two miles down there, in a straight line,' continued the other, "'speaking with something of the former terror in his voice, "'that I followed his trail to the place where it stopped. "'Dead.' "'And where you heard him calling and caught the stench, "'and all the rest of the wicked entertainment,' "'cried Hank with a volubility that betrayed his keen distress, "'and where your excitement overcame you to the point of producing illusions,' "'added Dr. Cathcart under his breath, "'yet not so low that his nephew didn't hear it. "'It was early in the afternoon, for they had traveled quickly, "'and there were still a good two hours of daylight left. "'Dr. Cathcart and Hank lost no time in beginning the search,' but Simpson was too exhausted to accompany them. They would follow the blazed marks on the trees and, where possible, his footsteps. Meanwhile, the best thing he could do was to keep a good fire going and rest. But after something like three hours' search, the darkness already down, the two men returned to the camp with nothing to report. Fresh snow had covered all the signs, and though they had followed the blazed trees to the spot where Simpson had turned back, They had not discovered the smallest indication of a human being, or, for that matter, of an animal. There were no fresh tracks of any kind. The snow lay undisturbed. It was difficult to know what was best to do, though in reality there was nothing more they could do. They might stay in search for weeks without much chance of success. The fresh snow destroyed their only hope, and they gathered round the fire for supper, a gloomy and despondent party. The facts, indeed, were sad enough. For Defago had a wife at Rat Portage, and his earnings were the family's sole means of support. Now that the whole truth and its ugliness was out, it seemed useless to deal in further disguise or pretense. They talked openly of the facts and probabilities. It was not the first time, even in the experience of Dr. Cathcart, that a man had yielded to the singular seduction of the solitudes and gone out of his mind. DeFego, moreover, was predisposed to something of the sort. For he already had a touch of melancholia in his blood, and his fiber was weakened by bouts of drinking that often lasted for weeks at a time. Something on this trip, one might never know precisely what, had sufficed to push him over the edge, that was all, and he had gone, gone off into the great wilderness of trees and lakes to die by starvation and exhaustion. The chances against his finding camp again were overwhelming. The delirium that was upon him would also doubtless have increased and it was quite likely he might do violence to himself and so hasten his cruel fate. Even while they talked, indeed, the end had probably come. On the suggestion of Hank, his old pal, however, they proposed to wait a little longer and devote the whole of the following day, from dawn to darkness, to the most systematic search they could devise. They would divide the territory between them. They discussed their plan in great detail. All that men could do, they would do and meanwhile they talked about the particular form in which the singular panic of the wilderness had made its attack upon the mind of the unfortunate guide. Hank, though familiar with the legend in its general outline, obviously did not welcome the turn the conversation had taken. He contributed little, though that little was illuminating, for he admitted that a story ran all over this section of the country to the effect that several Indians had seen the Wendigo along the shores of Fifty Island water in the fall of last year, and that this was the true reason of DeFego's disinclination to hunt there. Hank doubtless felt that he had, in a sense, helped his old pal to death by overpersuading him. When an Indian goes crazy, he explained, talking to himself more than to the others, it seemed, it always put that he's seen the Wendigo, and poor old DeFego was superstitious down to his very heels. And then Simpson, feeling the atmosphere more sympathetic, told over again the full story of his astonishing tale. He left out no details this time. He mentioned his own sensations and gripping fears. He only omitted the strange language used. But Topago surely had already told you all these details of the Wendigo legend, my dear fellow, insisted the doctor. I mean, he had talked about it, and thus put into your mind the ideas which your own excitement afterwards developed, whereupon Simpson again repeated the facts. Defago, he declared, had barely mentioned the beast. He, Simpson, knew nothing of the story, and so far as he remembered, had never even read about it. Even the word was unfamiliar. Of course he was telling the truth, and doctor Cathcart was reluctantly compelled to admit the singular character of the whole affair. He did not do this in words so much as in manner, however. He kept his back against a good stout tree. He poked the fire into a blaze the moment it showed signs of dying down. He was quicker than any of them to notice the least sound in the night about them, a fish jumping in the lake, a twig snapping in the bush, the dropping of occasional fragments of frozen snow from the branches overhead where the heat loosened them. His voice, too, changed a little in quality, becoming a shade less confident. Lower also in tone. Fear, to put it plainly, hovered close about that little camp. And though all three would have been glad to speak of other matters, the only thing they seemed able to discuss was this, the source of their fear. They tried other subjects in vain. There was nothing to say about them. Hank was the most honest of the group. He said next to nothing. He never once, however, turned his back to the darkness. His face was always to the forest, and when wood was needed... "'he didn't go farther than was necessary to get it. "'A wall of silence wrapped them in, "'for the snow, though not thick, "'was sufficient to deaden any noise, "'and the frost held things pretty tight besides. "'No sound but their voices "'and the soft roar of the flames made itself heard. "'Only from time to time "'something soft as the flutter of a pine moth's wings "'went past them through the air. "'No one seemed anxious to go to bed. "'The hours slipped towards midnight.' The legend is picturesque enough, observed the doctor after one of the longer pauses, speaking to break it rather than because he had anything to say. For the Wendigo is simply the call of the wild personified, which some natures hear to their own destruction. That's about it, Hank said presently. And there's no misunderstanding when you hear it. It calls you by the name, right up. Another pause followed. Then Dr. Cathcart came back to the forbidden subject with a rush that made the others jump. "'The allegory is significant,' he remarked, looking about him into the darkness. "'For the voice, they say, resembles all the minor sounds of the bush—wind, falling water, cries of the animals, and so forth. And once the victim hears that, he's off for good, of course. His most vulnerable points, moreover, are said to be the feet and the eyes.' The feet you see for the lust of wandering and the eyes for the lust of beauty. The poor beggar goes at such a dreadful speed that he bleeds beneath the eyes and his feet burn. Dr. Cathcart, as he spoke, continued to peer uneasily into the surrounding gloom. His voice sank to a hushed tone. The wendigo, he added, is said to burn his feet owing to the friction apparently caused by its tremendous velocity till they drop off and new one's form, exactly like its own. Simpson listened in horrified amazement, but it was the power on Hank's face that fascinated him most. He would willingly have stopped his ears and closed his eyes had he dared. It don't always keep to the ground, neither, came in Hank's slow, heavy drawl, for it goes so high that he thinks the stars have set him all afire, and it'll take great thumping jumps sometimes and run along the tops of the trees, carrying its partner with it and then dropping him just as a fish hawk will pick up a pickerel to kill it before eating. And it's food of all the muck in the whole bush is moss. And he laughed a short, unnatural laugh. It's a moss eater is the windigo. Hank added, looking up excitedly into the faces of his companions. Moss eater, he repeated, with a string of the most outlandish oaths he could invent. But Simpson now understood the true purpose of all this talk. What these two men, each strong and experienced in his own way, dreaded more than anything else, was silence. They were talking against time. They were also talking against darkness, against the invasion of panic, against the admission reflection might bring that they were in an enemy's country. Almost anything, in fact, rather than allow their innermost thoughts to assume control. He himself, already initiated by the awful vigil with terror, was beyond both of them in this respect. He had reached the stage where he was immune. But these two, the scoffing analytical doctor and the honest dogged backwoodsman, each sat trembling in the depths of his being. Thus the hours passed, and thus with lowered voices and a kind of taut inner resistance of spirit, this little group of humanity sat in the jaws of the wilderness and talked foolishly of the terrible and haunting legend. It was an unequal contest, all things considered, for the wilderness had already the advantage of first attack, and of a hostage. The fate of their comrade hung over them with a steadily increasing weight of oppression that finally became unsupportable. It was Hank, after a pause longer than the preceding ones, that no one seemed able to break, who first let loose all this pent-up emotion in a very unexpected fashion, by springing suddenly to his feet and letting out the most ear-shattering yell imaginable into the night. He couldn't contain himself any longer, it seemed. To make it carry even beyond an ordinary cry, he interrupted its rhythm by shaking the palm of his hand before his mouth. "'That's for Fago, he said, looking down at the other two with a queer, defiant laugh. "'For it's my belief.' that my old partner's not far from us at this very minute. There was a vehemence and recklessness about his performance that made Simpson, too, start to his feet in amazement and betrayed even the doctor into letting the pipe slip from between his lips. Hank's face was ghastly, but Cathcart showed a sudden weakness, a loosening of all his faculties, as it were. Then a momentary anger blazed into his eyes, and he, too, though with deliberation born of habitual self-control, "'got upon his feet and faced the excited guide, "'for this was unpermissible, foolish, dangerous, "'and he meant to stop it in the bud. "'What might have happened in the next minute or two, "'one may speculate about, yet never definitely know, "'for in the instant of profound silence "'that followed Hank's roaring voice, "'and as though in answer to it, "'something went past through the darkness of the sky overhead "'at terrific speed, "'something of necessity very large.' for it displaced much air. While down between the trees, there fell a faint and windy cry of a human voice, calling in tones of indescribable anguish and appeal. Oh, This fiery height! Oh! My feet of fire! They're burning! White to the very edge of his shirt, Hank looked stupidly about him like a child. White to the very edge of his shirt, Hank looked stupidly about him like a child. Dr. Cathcart uttered some kind of unintelligible cry, turning as he did, so with an instinctive moment of blind terror towards the protection of a tent, then halting in the act as though frozen. Simpson, alone of the three, retained his presence of mind a little. His own horror was too deep to allow of any immediate reaction. He had heard that cry before. Turning to his stricken companions, he said almost calmly, that's exactly the cry I heard, the very words he used. Then, lifting his face to the sky, he cried aloud, "Defego! De Fago! Come down here to us! And before there was time for anybody to take definite action one way or another, there came the sound of something dropping heavily between the trees, striking the branches on the way down, and landing with a dreadful thud upon the frozen earth below. The crash and thunder of it was really terrific. That's him, so help me, the good God, came from Hank in a whispering cry half-choked, his hand going automatically toward the hunting knife in his belt. He's coming! He's coming! He added with an irrational laugh of horror as the sound of heavy footsteps crunching over the snow became distinctly audible, approaching through the blackness towards the circle of light. And while the steps, with their stumbling motion, moved nearer and nearer upon them, the three men stood round that fire, motionless and dumb. Dr. Cathcart had the appearance of a man suddenly withered. Even his eyes did not move. Hank, suffering shockingly, seemed on the verge again of violent action, yet did nothing. He, too, was hewn of stone. Like stricken children, they seemed. The picture was hideous. And meanwhile, their owners still invisible, the footsteps came closer, crunching the frozen snow. It was endless, too prolonged to be quite real, this measured and pitiless approach. It was accursed. Then at length, the darkness, having thus laboriously conceived, brought forth a figure. It drew forward into the zone of uncertain light where fire and shadows mingled, not ten feet away, then halted, staring at them fixedly. The same instant it started forward again with the spasmodic motion as of a thing moved by wires and coming up closer to them, full into the glare of the fire. They perceived then that it was a man, and apparently that this man was Fago. Something like a skin of horror almost perceptibly drew down in that moment over every face, and three pairs of eyes shone through it as though they saw across the frontiers of normal vision into the unknown. Defago advanced, his tread faltering and uncertain. He made his way straight up to them as a group first, then turned sharply and peered close into the face of Simpson. The sound of a voice issued from his lips. Here I am, Boss Simpson. I heard someone calling me. It was a faint, dried-up voice, made wheezy and breathless as by immense exertion. I'm having a regular hellfire kind of trip, I am. <laughs> And he laughed, thrusting his head forward into the other's face. But that laugh started the machinery of the group of waxwork figures with the wax white skins. Hank immediately sprang forward with a stream of oaths so far-fetched that Simpson did not recognize them as English at all, but thought he had lapsed into Indian or some other lingo. He only realized that Hank's presence, thus thrust between them, was welcome, uncommonly welcome. Dr. Cathcart, though more calmly and leisurely, advanced behind him, heavily stumbling. Simpson seems hazy as to what was actually said and done in these next few seconds, for the eyes of that detestable and blasted visage, peering at such close quarters into his own, utterly bewildered his senses at first. He merely stood still. He said nothing. He had not the trained will of the older men that forced them into action in defiance of all emotional stress, He watched them moving as behind a glass that half destroyed their reality. It was dreamlike, perverted. Yet through the torrent of Hank's meaningless phrases, he remembers hearing his uncle's tone of authority, hard and forced, saying several things about food and warmth, blankets, whiskey, and the rest. And further, that whiffs of that penetrating, unaccustomed odor, vile yet sweetly bewildering, assailed his nostrils during all that followed. It was no less a person than himself, however, less experienced and adroit than the others, though he was, who gave instinctive utterance to the sentence that brought a measure of relief into the ghastly situation by expressing the doubt and thought in each one's heart. "'It is you!' he asked under his breath, horror-breaking his speech. And at once Cathcart burst out with a loud answer before the other had time to move his lips. "'Of course it is, of course it is, only can't you see?' He's nearly dead with exhaustion, cold, and terror. Isn't that enough to change a man beyond all recognition? It was said in order to convince himself as much as to convince the others. The overemphasis alone proved that. And continually, while he spoke and acted, he held a handkerchief to his nose. That odor pervaded the whole camp. For the defago who sat huddled by the big fire, wrapped in blankets, drinking hot whiskey and holding food in wasted hands, was no more like the guide they had last seen alive than the picture of a man of 60 is like a daguerreotype of his early youth in the costume of another generation. Nothing really can describe that ghastly caricature, that parody, masquerading there in the firelight as Defego. From the ruins of the dark and awful memories he still retains, Simpson declares that the face was more animal than human, the features drawn about into wrong proportions, the skin loose and hanging, as though it had been subjected to extraordinary pressures and tensions. It made him think vaguely of those bladder faces blown up by the hawkers on Ludgate Hill that change their expression as they swell, and as they collapse amid a faint and wailing imitation of a voice. Both face and voice suggested some abominable resemblance. But Cathcart long afterwards, seeking to describe the indescribable, asserts that thus might have looked a face and body that had been in the air so rarefied that, the weight of atmosphere being removed, the entire structure threatened to fly asunder and become... It was Hank, though all distraught and shaking with a tearing volume of emotion he could neither handle nor understand, who brought things to a head without much ado. He went off to a little distance from the fire, apparently so that the light should not dazzle him too much, and shading his eyes for a moment with both hands, shouted in a loud voice that held anger and affection, dreadfully mingled. "'You ain't the Fago "'You ain't the fago at all. "'I don't give a damn, but that ain't you, my old pal of twenty years.' "'He glared upon the huddled figure as though it would destroy him with his eyes. "'And if it is, I'll swab the floor of hell with a wad of cotton wool on a toothpick. "'So help me, good God,' he added, with a violent fling of horror and disgust. "'It was impossible to silence him. "'He stood there shouting like one possessed. "'Horrible to see. Horrible to hear. "'Because it was the truth.' He repeated himself in fifty different ways, each more outlandish than the last. The woods rang with echoes. At one time it looked as if he meant to fling himself upon the intruder, for his hand continually jerked towards the long hunting knife in his belt. But in the end, he did nothing, and the whole tempest completed itself very shortly with tears. Hank's voice suddenly broke. He collapsed on the ground, and Cathcart, somehow or other, persuaded him at last to go into the tent and lie quiet. The remainder of the affair, indeed, was witnessed by him from behind the canvas, his white and terrified face peeping through the crack of the tent door flap. Then Dr. Cathcart, closely followed by his nephew, who so far had kept his courage better than all of them, went up with a determined air and stood opposite to the figure of Defago huddled over the fire. He looked him squarely in the face and spoke. At first, his voice was firm. DeVego, tell us what happened. Just a little, so that we can know how best to help you. He asked in the tone of authority, almost of command. And at that point, it was command. At once afterwards, however, it changed in quality, for the figure turned up to him a face so piteous, so terrible, and so little like humanity, that the doctor shrank back from him as from something spiritually unclean. Simpson, watching close behind him, says he got the impression of a mask that was on the verge of dropping off and that underneath they would discover something black and diabolical revealed in utter nakedness. Out with it, man! Out with it! Cathcart cried, terror running neck and neck with entreaty. None of us can stand this much longer! It was the cry of instinct over reason. And then, Defago, smiling whitely, answered in that thin and fading voice, It already seemed passing over into a sound of quite another character. I seen that great Wendigo thing, he whispered, sniffing the air about him exactly like an animal. I've been with it, too. Whether the poor devil would have said more, or whether Dr. Cathcart would have continued the impossible cross-examination, cannot be known, for at that moment the voice of Hank was heard yelling at the top of his voice from behind the canvas that concealed all but his terrified eyes. Such a howling was never heard. His feet! Oh, God, his feet! Look at his great, changed feet! Defago, shuffling where he sat, had moved in such a way that for the first time his legs were in full light and his feet were visible. Yet Simpson had no time himself to see properly what Hank had seen, and Hank has never seen fit to tell. That same instant, with a leap like that of a frightened tiger, Cathcart was upon him, bundling the folds of blanket about his legs with such speed but the young student caught little more than a passing glimpse of something dark and oddly masked where moccasin feet ought to have been, and saw even that but with uncertain vision. Then, before the doctor had time to do more, or Simpson time to even think a question, much less ask it, DeFego was standing upright in front of them, balancing with pain and difficulty, and upon his shapeless and twisted visage an expression so dark and so malicious that it was, in the true sense monstrous now you have seen it too he wheezed you seen my unfirey, burning feet and now that is unless you can save me and prevent it's about time for his piteous and beseeching voice was interrupted by a sound that was like the roar of wind coming across the lake the trees overhead shook their tangled branches the blazing fire bent its flames as before a blast and something swept with a terrific, rushing noise about the little camp and seemed to surround it entirely in a single moment of time. DeFego shook the clinging blankets from his body, turned towards the woods behind, and with the same stumbling motion that had brought him, was gone. Gone. Gone before anyone could move muscle to prevent him. Gone with an amazing, blundering swiftness that left no time to act. The darkness positively swallowed him, and less than a dozen seconds later, above the roar of the swaying trees and the shout of the sudden wind, all three men, watching and listening with stricken hearts, heard a cry that seemed to drop down upon them from a great height of sky and distance. Dr. Cathcart, suddenly master of himself, and therefore of the others, "'was just able to seize Hank violently by the arm "'as he tried to dash headlong into the bush. "'But I want her know,' shrieked the guide. "'I want to see. "'That ain't him at all, but but some devil that shunted into his place.' "'Somehow or other, he admits he never quite knew how he accomplished it. "'He managed to keep him in the tent and pacify him. "'The doctor apparently had reached the stage where reaction had set in "'and allowed his own innate force to conquer. "'Certainly he managed Hank admirably.' It was his nephew, however, hitherto so wonderfully controlled, which gave him most cause for anxiety, for the cumulative strain had now produced a condition of lachrymose hysteria, which made it necessary to isolate him upon a bed of boughs and blankets as far removed from Hank as was possible under the circumstances. And there he lay, as the watches of that haunted night passed over the lonely camp, crying startled sentences and fragments of sentences into the folds of his blanket, a quantity of gibberish about speed and height and fire mingled oddly with biblical memories of the classroom until his uncle came over to change the direction of his thoughts and comfort him the hysteria fortunately proved but temporary sleep cured him just as it cured hank till the first signs of daylight came soon after five o'clock dr cathcart kept his vigil his face was the color of chalk and there were strange flushes beneath the eyes An appalling terror of the soul battled with his will all through those silent hours. At dawn he lit the fire himself, made breakfast, and woke the others, and by seven they were well on their way back to the home camp. Three perplexed and afflicted men, but each in his own way, having reduced his inner turmoil to a condition of more or less systematized order again. They talked a little, and then only of the most wholesome and common things, for their minds were charged with painful thoughts that clamored for explanation, though no one dared refer to them. Hank, being nearest to primitive conditions, was the first to find himself, for he was also less complex. In Dr. Cathcart, civilization championed his forces against an attack singular enough. To this day, perhaps, he's not quite sure of certain things. Anyhow, he took longer to find himself. Simpson, the student of divinity, it was, who arranged his conclusions probably with the best, though not most scientific, appearance of order. They had surely witnessed something crudely and essentially primitive, something that had survived somehow the advance of humanity had emerged terrifically, betraying a scale of life still monstrous and immature. He envisaged it rather as a glimpse into prehistoric age, when superstitions, gigantic and uncouth, still oppressed the hearts of men, when the forces of nature were still untamed, the powers that may have haunted a primeval universe not yet withdrawn. To this day he thinks of what he termed, years later in a sermon, savage and formidable, potencies lurking behind the souls of men, not evil perhaps in themselves, yet instinctively hostile to humanity as it exists. With his uncle he never discussed the matter in detail, for the barrier between the two types of mind made it difficult. Only once, years later, something led them to the frontier of the subject, of a single detail of the subject. Rather, can you even tell me what they were like, he asked, and the reply, though conceived in wisdom, was not encouraging. It is far better you should not try to know, or to find out. Well, that odor, persisted the nephew. What do you make of that? Dr. Cathcart looked at him and raised his eyebrows. Odors? he replied, are not so easy as sounds and sights of telepathic communication. I make as much, or as little, probably, as you do yourself. He was not quite so glib as usual with his explanations. And that was all. At the fall of day, cold, exhausted, famished, the party came to the end of the long portage and dragged themselves into a camp that at first glimpse seemed empty. Fire there was none, and no punk came forward to welcome them. The emotional capacity of all three was too overspent to recognize either surprise or annoyance, but the cry of spontaneous affection that burst from the lips of Hank as he rushed ahead of them towards the fireplace came probably as a warning that the end of the amazing affair was not quite yet. And both Cathcart and his nephew confessed afterwards that when they saw him kneel down in his excitement and embrace something that reclined, gently moving, beside the extinguished ashes— they felt in their very bones that this something would prove to be de Fego, the true de Fego, returned. And so, indeed, it was. It is soon told, exhausted to the point of emaciation, the French-Canadian, what was left of him, that is, fumbled among the ashes, trying to make a fire. His body crouched there, the weak fingers obeying feebly the instinctive habit of a lifetime with twigs and matches but there was no longer any mind to direct the simple operation. The mind had fled beyond recall, and with it, too, had fled memory. Not only recent events, but all previous life was a blank. This time it was the real man, though incredibly and horribly shrunken. On his face was no expression of any kind, whatever, fear, welcome, or recognition. He did not seem to know who it was that embraced him or who it was that fed, warmed, and spoke to him the words of comfort and relief. Forlorn and broken beyond all reach of human aid, the little man did meekly as he was bidden. The something that had constituted him individual had vanished forever. In some ways it was more terribly moving than anything they had yet seen. That idiot smile as he drew wads of coarse moss from his swollen cheeks and told them that he was a damned moss-eater, the continued vomiting of even the simplest food, and worst of all, the piteous and childish voice of the complaint in which he told them that his feet pained him, burned like fire, which was natural enough when Dr. Cathcart examined them and found that both were dreadfully frozen. Beneath the eyes there were faint indications of recent bleeding. The details of how he survived the prolonged exposure, of where he had been, or of how he covered the great distance from one camp to the other, including an immense detour of the lake on foot, since he had no canoe. All this remains unknown. His memory had vanished completely, and before the end of the winter, whose beginning witnessed this strange occurrence, Defago, bereft of mind, memory, and soul, had gone with it. He lingered only a few weeks. And what Punk was able to contribute to the story throws no further light upon it. He was cleaning fish by the lake shore about five o'clock in the evening, an hour, that is, before the search party returned, when he saw this shadow of the guide picking its way weakly into camp. In advance of him, he declares, came the faint whiff of a certain singular odor. That same instant, old punk started for home. He covered the entire journey of three days as only Indian blood could have covered it. The terror of a whole race drove him. He knew what it all meant. Defego. Had Seen the Wendigo. Thanks for joining us with Part 2 of the Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.